Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hello there. Hope you all had a nice 4th of July holiday and are ready to get back into the swing of things. Speaking of fireworks, trend-following royalty Jerry Parker threw up some fireworks of his own today, announcing a new ETF he's working on, trading over 300 markets via trend-following. So we're going to try and get him on next week to talk through what that looks like. Go subscribe today so you don't miss it. On to this episode, we're dusting off the second part of our EQD conference breakdown with Jason Buck for today's pod. Jason and I talked through what was talked through on all things equity hedging, interest rate hedging, institutional trading, and more. Send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM and its Guide to Trend Following White Paper. How do they do it? Why do they do it? When does it work? When doesn't it? Guide to Trend is a great complement with managers, performance, and more. Go to rcmalts slash white papers to check it out. And now back to the show. So the last, this was tough because I wanted to say like that LT panel was my favorite one. But then our guy, Corey, was good on that panel. And then this panel is typically my favorite with some all-stars right. here. Um, so this was leaders in volatility and talking about monetizing dislocations globally. So it was uh, Natalie Reed of SIBO, which I still call CBOE. I'll get around to it eventually when you guys changed it. Uh, and that's Will Bartlett, CEO of Parallax, Robbie Knopp, uh, head of S&P options trading at Optiver, Vishnu of Volar Capital Management, who used to be at Citadel, and Chase Mueller or Mueller, I'm not sure, head of Global Macro at One River Asset Management. So a couple billions of dollars there on stage. And actually, the people who actually make the decisions for those billions of dollars, um, I'll leave that be. But yeah, give me your quick thoughts on this panel. This was the same crew last year, I believe, right? Might have. Fairly a, close. Little, you had. Yeah. Um... You had uh, it wasn't Robbie from Optiver. You had the uh, CEO. I can't can't recall his name right now. And wasn't Vishnu. It was Ben Eifert. Oh, I can't yeah, remember yeah. Chase was on the panel or not. Yeah, but, I think um, it might have been this, but Ben yeah, Eifert instead I've, of Chase. I have a few pages of actually anecdotes that we can kind of go through. And and right away, actually, they started with a poll on this one. Uh, what is the biggest risk the audience uh, felt was in in volatility markets or that could affect volatility? And it was Fed policy was the. Uh, yeah, and then Vishnu came right out and goes, okay, I'm going to stop hedging that since these polls are, are obviously typically wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Chase jumped right in because the, I think second on that was like uh, uh, debt ceiling and default. And he said markets are looking through the risks and they don't seem to be concerned about default um, as they're looking at even cross-asset volatility as everybody's like, let's just get this over with and, and keep it moving. Um but Vishnu came back with, you know, you have to look at cross asset vol for some asymmetric uh, hedges. And so, you know, you're taking basis risk when you're looking cross asset vol. Um, but, you know, we work with some managers that do that and everything is because sometimes, you know, maybe you can't find the cheapest asymmetry in, in equity vol. So you have to you have to use a little bit of cross asset uh, vol to find those. Um, but, you know, there's there's risk there. But if you spread your bets, um, it might be a decent idea. Um what was interesting, uh, Will came right out with saying that uh, 2022 was an aberration in in low vol for equities. 
And I thought that was interesting to call it an aberration for 2022. And so he was saying is the equities turn. So it was almost like flip. I like how Will tends to flip things around. Yeah. Is all we heard about in 2022 is equity vol is suppressed and rates fall is taking off. And then so almost like we were saying earlier, so everybody's kind of jumping on rates fall or looking for that cross asset ball. And uh, Will was kind of like, maybe it's mean reversion. Like he felt like equity ball had been suppressed in 22, um, maybe moving into second half of 23. Do we see, you know, equity ball picking back up? Is it is is it equity ball's turn? to kind Yeah, of that was his line, way? which was funny, right? Like they're kindergartners getting a turn. I think it might be yeah. equity, equity ball's turn. Yeah. Um, Robbie had some like interesting stuff talking about. Obviously, he has a, a very uh, unique view working at Optiver at the market maker and options. And, you know, why, you know, skew was, you know, poor in 2022 was like we talked about earlier, like reduced exposure by, you know, real money institutions. Um, everything was like scheduled macro data, right? Everybody's just waiting for like CPI print. So that was really kind of like just like one day vol. And then he brought up, um, you know, which was one of the other main themes is that structured product flow um, and how structured product flow can kind of reduce, uh, especially skew with people, you know, rushing for any sort of hedges. Um and he said, you know, vol was, you know, you know, supply of vol was on downticks was just fine. Um, what they said is, though, is how you've had a bit of reversal coming into 23 here where, you know, skew got crushed in 22. And we saw the return of um, realized vol or just long gamma positions where he's saying in 23, we're seeing realized vol come down, implied skew start to go back up. Um, but at the same time, he said still short skews trades have been profitable this year. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag there. Um, but that was and, interesting, kind of his perspectives. And I think I asked you during the panel of like they use skew probably in a the correct professional way, and my brain is not the correct professional way. But right, they were using skew kind of interchangeably with with puts, in my opinion, right? Yeah. So when they were saying like skew worked, selling skew this year works. They're basically saying like buying puts last year did not work, selling them right. this year has worked. Um, was there anything more to that or like you say yeah. like out, out of the money puts, right? Like that's yeah. where you're going to see the skew the most is more in your out of the money, deep out of the money puts. As we know, those people that were just buying deep out of the money puts as protection got crushed in 22. Um, but then we're seeing a little bit of skew come back. So it, it's a bit of a trade off, right? Like if you're buying those deep out of the money puts, you're getting crushed on skew coming in. Um, but then as skew picks up, you're making a little bit of money on those, but it might just get crushed back again. You know, you don't know if this is actually when you're going to get your payout or you're just getting kind of uh, lulled into like a teeter-totter or a whipsaw uh, when you're buying that kind of out of the money skew. And then these guys got into the zero DTE a little bit as well, um, but mainly saying they're kind of on the fence. They didn't have a strong opinion one way or the other. Yeah, I have uh, notes on that. Before I get there, let me just yeah, finish yeah, on some ahead. skew ideas. Is like Vishnu pointed out also that that paradox that you know skew is higher in bull markets. So as we're mm, as we're right. rushing up bull markets, you tend to get a little more feel where people buy a little bit more protection, right? Where he's saying like we were talking about that uh, Telegraph twenty twenty two, you know, drawdown or recession or whatever you want to call it, is like you actually have skew coming in, and it's, it seems counterintuitive. Um, but he's seeing institutions, you know, implement a lot more call spreads these days. Um, he said you can make money uh, long skew and a grind up. Uh, it's just a little bit more difficult. Um, was interesting. Chase brought up that he feels that VIX looks relatively cheap compared to rates fall. So that one's a quite the basis trade that you'd be looking at. And I've seen a lot of people starting to, you know, buy calls on VIX. But you know, as we saw, you know, Im Im implied didn't do as well in twenty two that people expected it to do. So who knows? That like maybe 
Will said it's, it's maybe it's Vic's turn as well. I don't know. Yeah. Did that seem weird to you that he, he's the pro quoting Vic's? Right? It seemed like a retail-y thing kind of to say. Um, yeah. And you still have some pros in there. I mean, you've had like rougher that will like, um, you know, they'll they'll take their shots on Vic's calls. You know, in the past, that's where they've been 50 cents. So, you know, it yeah. just depends on how large you are. And I think rougher is almost 30 billion ish. So that gives you an idea. But that's it's it's. It's also that's not fair to say 30 billion ish because, you know, they have some, you know, tail risk and long ball positions and they're they usually use up or upwards of three different trades. And so VIX calls might be a small position in that, you know, relative to the overall size. Um, the other yeah. one, one other one of the ones that before we get to zero DTE is that uh, Will said that uh, commodity vol looks attractive because the Fed can't suppress it. Mm, yeah, and, I had that as well. And so I think people have been talking about commodity ball for a while. And I think even Will has been talking, he was talking about commodity ball last year, but I thought that was an interesting anecdote they threw in there at the end because the Fed can't suppress it. Um, so that was an interesting way to think about commodity ball. So getting to zero DTE that you brought up. Um, Real quick on commodity ball, that's like yeah. the mother of all basis risk, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I don't even know where to start with that. Like copper one of those like oil, I guess, but yeah, I think in this sense, like I don't think Will's worried about basis risk. So we started talking about like VIX calls and everything. We talk about basis risk, but I think uh, Will and Parallax is just, they, they run cross asset vol books and they're not really hedging against S and P. So they're not worried about the basis right. risk. They're just trying to make money in commodity. Got it. Right. So on the zero DTE front, uh, Robbie was talking about that the liquidity allows for cheaper transaction costs. Um, and he he finds that uh, HFT firms are starting to enter the space of zero DTE um, and they're selling spreads based on back tests, which is always a uh, yeah, always pause, pause for concern. Um, and it, it's that idea, too, of like if you look at any sort of longer term systematic back test, everybody's going to tell you like 85% plus of options expire worthless. So you should sell options. I mean, but they don't get into, well, what's the price you're paying? What's your tender, et cetera. But if you take that to the extreme, well, if I can sell options on a daily basis, I'm just compounding more effectively, you know, or, or quicker over long term. So I think that's what we see a lot of. Um, and who but who also, you say is, is doing the spreads? ETFs? Uh, Rob, Robbie said that... Uh, I think maybe the HFT firms were, that you were coming HFT. in were the ones Got HFT yeah. high frequency trading firms. Um, but he sees very balanced risk, which was kind of a theme we kind of heard throughout the few days. Um, he said, and, you know, that you, you see trading more trading balance risk, but then they're raising the risk limits. So he, he felt that it was, you know, fairly benign or and and fairly contained in a balanced market. And he he said um, he had an interesting way to look at balance. Right? He said it's balanced with volume, with liquidity, and I'm going to forget the third thing, like, uh, what's his name? Don't ever, don't ever hold your fingers up. But right, they don't just look at it like, okay, that's the order books balanced. They're looking at it. He said they did a deep dive, did this research, went across volume, liquidity, and whatever the third one is, and saw no disruptions there. And then I think you might have misnoted that because I had the note of him saying, ever since the zero DTs have come out, they haven't had to adjust their risk limits once. So basically saying That's as a market okay. maker, if you're scared about all this stuff, we haven't had to like have a special meeting or had like, oh my God, the the risk is all out of control one time. Basically saying like everyone calm the hell down. Like this is just normal operation for us as a market maker. It's a new toy. It's a new tool, but the balance is there. And that was the key 
right? Everyone's worried of like, oh, if this thing gets out of control, which is always weird to think about, right? Because everyone that's bought is sold and vice versa. So, but I think they mean the balance. If everyone bought them and just the market maker on the other side. Right, right. Right. And then the market pins at that thing and the the market maker has to cover. That's what could cause this liquidity cascade. Uh, TM, Corey Hofstein. But he's saying, no, it's balanced. We're seeing client flow on both sides of the order book. Of buyers and sellers, so they're they're not nervous about it at all. Um, yeah, it's good. It's a good way to point out that the the balance risk is more like uh, the gamma effects of the market makers trying to lay off their risk. And thank you, that was a function of my notes. So I had I couldn't yeah. uh, un- read read my own notes. So it had said trading more, and then I see raised risk limits. But then after you said that, I realized I wrote haven't, but I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I was like, is that <laughs> honest? What is that? Like so, yeah, like you said, they are trading more, but they haven't raised their risk limits. So that was yeah, that was a key point. Yeah. And like. So, the as hard you part know, this, I, so, I'm having a really hard time reading my notes. But yeah. yeah, so like Robbie, you know, being co-head of S and P options trading at Optiver as like a market, like I would, uh, he would have the most interesting things I would think to say and the most expertise in like zero DTE options. But then the the second order effect of that is like, what is he saying on stage versus what they're saying privately? So that's the only that's the only caveat I'll give to it. But like, if I want to hear from anybody about zero DTE, I want to hear from like Optiver. Right. Not the person like creating a gamma model based off publicly yeah. available data and whatnot. Like, here's what's happening. There's a huge gamma squeeze going to happen. Like, no, this guy's living it every day. All, probably many multitudes of capital personally at risk, right? As well as the firms at risk. So yeah, I agree with you 100% of like, that's, I would trust his opinion above all else. Um, But then the other guy, I think they all basically said like, yeah, we trade it. But no one was like, it's the best thing ever. We're making tons of money doing zero DTE. It was just kind of like, yeah, it's a new tool in the toolbox. Right? Do you get a different feeling? Um, Yeah, for the most part. And I'm just trying to think. Of, um, I'm looking at some of the other notes from like Will and Chase. And I, I love, you know, Will's not afraid to uh, step in and push back or be contrarian. But he was saying like, he's like, basically everything's gotten shorter term. You know, all life and trading gets shorter and shorter term, you know, whether we, you know, watch used to watch two hour movies to watching 20 second TikToks. Like, so he was just kind of saying everything's shorter term. He's saying they use it as a tactical complement to other things they're doing. Like you're saying, they're they're like barely using them. Um, He said the implied volatility looks cheap to the to the realized volatility um, on event spreads. But he was also saying, well, that's what I thought was interesting. He said he felt the transaction costs were high relative to the vol exposure that you get. Mm, so where right. Robbie yeah. thought that the yeah the liquidity allowed for cheaper transaction costs, I think Optiver is going to have a very different perspective than Will's going to have, you know, kind of from market maker to buy side kind of. And so it was interesting that he felt their transaction costs were too high. That's where they weren't using them, but more as a, as a compliment. And he actually said it actually surprised him how successful it was. So he had an honest admonition there that like he didn't think that zero DTE was going to get the volume that it's that it has uh, or grown over the last year. And so he said he's he's been generally surprised by that. Um, Chase was saying that like he, this, that it, and I shouldn't write this down because it's like uh, um, confirmation bias for me, but he says it's yeah. not cannibalizing the one to three month trades. So you didn't see, you know, vol has been, I mean, sorry, volume has been coming down in like the one to three month trades and volume has been rising in the zero DTE, but he's saying they're not related. The volume in the zero DT has nothing to do with the volume in the one to three months, which now, is whether well, yeah that's everyone else is saying like it, it's so it's just purely coincidental that it's in inverse yeah. lines right which seems weird but you would know well 
Well, it also starts with though too. It's like, do you think who creates the volume, buyers or sellers, right? And so for me, the zero DTEs is just people wanting to sell zero DTEs. And so it, and we've always, everybody's been saying it's like uh, retail buyers, et cetera. But like, is that really true? I'm not, I'm not so certain. Like who creates the supply and demand? Sometimes, sometimes it can be inverse. Um, and shout out to uh, Chris Sidiel Ambrose. They wrote a, a paper about the zero DT if you want to go look it up. And that's what their researcher found as well is it's more um, institutions or hedge funds selling and not necessarily retail trying to punt on a uh, basically, a, you know, a, a directional play on a, on a daily basis. Um, and then I had the note, but I can't read my numbers there of his example, right? Of the, or maybe I just wrote an example to help me think about it of that, the vols expensive, right? Was basically like if you're paying, right? Chase was thinking of like, you pay only 2% spread or whatever the number is. Maybe it was 50 bips or something, right? right? And, but Will's thinking, we're like, okay, I paid 50 bips, but I'm really only realizing 1%. I'm getting two to one, right. right? If I have a three month option, I pay 50 bips, basically the same spread and I can get 15% realized, right? Then I'm like 30 to one. So that's where his mind was of like, okay, but you're kind of expensive for the realize you're going to get in that day. Like how far is one day going to go is the ultimate question. Yeah. Remind me of the uh, arguments I used to have with you about like the tick size for VIX contracts. Yeah. Even S&P. Even uh, Did somebody else bring up tick sizes for yeah. S&P too? Like at one point, I think maybe it's in my notes for later. Yeah. Um, will also said that, you know, a, a black swan event can and will spike fall, but he's I, I, like nothing on the radar. Cause I think somebody had a question about black swans and like, you're like, we're both like tautologically like, you know, they're like, tell us what black swans coming. It's like, you can't, that's why it's yeah. a, a, a black swan. Um, so, what Robbie said, though, is the black swan, especially for zero DTE, that that was a lot of rumors going around the event was the pr proposal for intraday margin um, could exacerbate vols with rolling margin calls. So that's the other reason why we've seen the rise in zero DTE is it, it's a it's a function of regulations. It's like you don't have to post uh, that much margin for these intraday options trades. And that's why people have been really pulling them off in size and why you see that volume increase. But if they were to move to um, intraday margin requirements or raising those, that's when you could just see, like you're saying, a, just a cascade of margin calls. That would be a systemic risk to the zero DTE space. But is that a cascading risk to the systemic you know, financial system is a whole different you know, ball of wax or topic of discussion. And then that didn't even make much sense to me because if you're out each day, there shouldn't be margin calls, right? There, you just put on the margin every day. So you just wouldn't put it on the next day. Yeah, it's just, but you, if you're intraday, if we had a movement and they got margin called and the got buffer, it, yeah, yeah. at got least it, on the yeah. market makers, right? You could have a cascade of like bankruptcies, basically. Well, or, I was or, taking it to mean there's this like 30 billion in zero DTE volume that has a margin associated with it, which is true intraday, but not true day over day. Right. Correct. And then if the regulations come in and take that away, that margin goes away. We're saying yeah. as it would be applied intraday, yes, it would exacerbate and cause, which would be. Uh, we wouldn't put it beyond our government, but right, which would be dumb. Like, hey, we're going to try and make this safer and we're going to add basically circuit breakers that make it worse. Yeah. And so you're right. There's countervailing forces, right? Going in the next day, it, you know, you just don't put it on the trades, but everybody gets wiped out in that day. So that's the kind of the issue there. Um, and then Chase just pointed out this mainly been massive isolated vol events throughout the last like year and a half. It's like more like one day. Kind of events so we've seen those spikes and balls but then it just mean reverting just as quickly 
Yeah, and I wrote down contagion. Were they going into contagion? Like until we see, right? Those isolated events haven't bled into, right? They were in bond ball. They didn't bleed in equity ball. They were in like the ruble in the beginning of the year. It didn't bleed right. into equity. So the mat, and I think it was yeah. Vishnu bringing up like, yeah. Um, am I on the wrong panel there? But yeah, the um, yeah, no, that's fine. yeah, right. He was bringing up like until you're not going to see a big blowout and. Mm ball really spike until there's con multi-asset contagion correct and then and what, um what makes that happen is the billion dollar question so once again though too we're always trying to decipher you know on zero dte how much is like retail non-toxic flow versus like toxic professional flow is is robbie pointed out this is uh what i love too is like he said so much so much of it trades electronically it's hard to decipher these days between retail and institutional and i thought mm -hmm. that was a great point out because like you said everybody's selling you know, their products for how to decipher between retail and institutional and gamma positions of market makers, but then you don't know what's in dark. Pool. Like there's just so much unknowns there that I thought that was a great pointing out that with the electronic trades and then not only, you know, I've talked about this many times is not only the electronic trades, but then electronic algo execution trades for like hiding with icebergs, et cetera. It's like, it's hard to know if that, you know, 50 lot trade is, you know, or five lot trades retail, or if that's institution just tranching into the trade. And then we talk after the event or somewhere in there of like, it's funny to think of, right? Retail flow is usually non-toxic in the market maker world, right? They don't want to get right. in front. They don't want to see an order, get in front of it. And then it's some institutional player that can come 10x the size over it and cause them a big loss. So it's in their benefit to know who's retail, who's institutional, so they don't get in front of the wrong person. Um, you had an interesting point with these zero DTE that when does retail's non-toxic flow become toxic this was all even in meme stocks and they were tying in meme stock a little bit stuff as their well like it builds this momentum and then the non-toxic flow becomes toxic flow because they're moving on the same direction at the same time which yeah as soon as they as soon as they in in aggregate and in correlated nature move in the same direction at the same time that's like nuclear toxic or something like it's yeah. just a whole other <laughs> level it goes from non-toxic to just like get the hell out of the way and shut but down it just flip sign immediately like and then i asked the question at the end Oh, I was going to tee you up. I was going to oh, tee you up, but Go like, but no, I was just saying for like, um, like Vishnu was saying, like, uh, like going back to what you're saying about Vishnu, is he sees that cross asset correlation is where we could see a potential like black swan is like, once again, if we see yields down, stock down, potential world, um, you know, like back in March, that 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 can be an issue. Um, Real so quick then, on that, what? Know, sorry, but isn't that interesting? You two panels are like, if we see yields down, where they say yields down, stocks down. Yields yeah. up stocks down. No, he's. I think. I think Vishnu's saying like rates down, like yields down, stocks down. Okay, I was coming from the same point. Like we just had um, bonds down, stocks down. So if everyone's like, "Oh, that would be a big black swan thing," if we then I'm like we just had it, how could it be unexpected? Right. If this is had... everybody's position for. That's what I'm saying. Everybody's position for the previous. Like he's saying, going back to the previous like few years ago like our last few decades where everybody's positioned the opposite now i think it was what vishnu was trying to say because yeah. of that cross asset correlation flipping again um so then it was question time so you got in uh a, a great question so i'll tee you up for that one that was uh you're, you're showing your uh your big brain memory from from last year with will oh uh, you're gonna tell him what my handle was in the question app yeah. oh what's up with the moss wasn't that yeah. your question <laughs> There were some butterflies slash moths that were uh, plaguing yeah, Vegas. Two or Vegas three of them in full bloom. Yeah, in the wind uh, place. 
But yeah, my question was like last year and they kind of misconstrued it. So we, we'll get to clear it up here. That's why you have a podcast. Um, so last year, there was a lot of talk about dispersion doing great, dispersion doing great. This year, zero talk of dispersion uh, and a lot of talk about how Gamma had done great last year. That was the part they missed, right? And so my question was like, hey, last year we were talking about dispersion doing great. Nobody was talking about the Gamma trade, which is like at the money, don't rely on a Vega pop, rely on it uh, approaching your strikes. So question was simply like last year we're talking dispersion. No one talking Vega. This year we're talking or gamma. This year we're talking gamma. No one's talking dispersion. What's what's next year gonna be? What are we gonna be talking about next year that we didn't talk about this year? Um, so they misconstrued the question and thought I said gamma is working this year. And they're saying, no, it's not working so far this year. Uh the past few months hasn't seen gamma working at all. But Will jumped back in and took jumped on his sword and said, like, yeah, I called last year that dispersion was going to blow up way too much money in it, way too much excitement about it. Uh, and that correlations are going to unwind and it's going to be a, a pain trade across a lot of firms. Like didn't happen. I'm going to double down. He's like, it's still a big risk. I still see it having problems. Um, he said they're still involved in it. They still trade it, but he sees a big risk in that dispersion trade as well. Perfect. That's end of uh, day one. So day two started off with Tom Lee. Um, keynote, forecast or forge, building resiliency in a risky world. So it's Tom Lee, CIO of Parametric. Um, talented public speaker, I like to style. Um, kept this all engaged. And a lot of, we could go way deep on this, but we're going to keep it high level. But you know, everything you're always talking about, right? Complexity, emergent behaviors, had some interesting stuff on probability versus confidence, uh, right? And an option needs to know not just the probability, but also the confidence and the and how the confidence brings in the second order, right? The first order of uncertainty is just the probability. The certainty brings in the second order of probability, which is the range of probabilities. Like, okay, here's the probability, but what's the probability that this thing actually happens way over here? So the range of probabilities, and he was kind of bringing that back to, to build a resilient portfolio, you need to think about the range of possibilities, which you would call paths, right? And think about those range probabilities, the path dependency, and build a resilient portfolio that can exist and not get blown out in each of those range of possibilities. Um, so his, how do you build a resilient portfolio? Diverse, liquid, attentive to costs, cautious of complexity which was sort of interesting but then he went with like like a core satellite approach i'm like well that's like everyone knows that thing so he lost me a little bit there of like you had all this great stuff and then he went with a simplistic example um so and then the other interesting thing and then i'll let you go in here is he had this pyramid of uh basically investment products at the top was pure alpha right that gets charged two and twenty next was hedge funds that are basically still one to two, a little bit less management fee, but still one to two to 20. Uh, then alternative beta, which gets down into your 50 bips to 100 bips. Then in indexable alts, which get down to like 10 bips. And then market beta, which we know like SPY, which is down less than five bips. So it's kind of this interesting as you, that products and strategies kind of move down this pyramid. So 20 years ago, we might've thought a simplistic carry strategy was alpha, and kind of now you can get that as a alternative beta. So it's moved down that thing. 
And then even 50 years ago, we would have thought owning all 500 stocks in the S&P was maybe some alpha, maybe indexable. Also, that's moved way down the chain. Um, yeah. And he basically was saying to protect against moving down that chain, added, managers add complexity and they add all this stuff. And you have to be careful of is that complexity just to protect their turf and not move down the pyramid? Or is it actually to provide resiliency? Man, um, unfortunately, I was in a coffee meeting this morning. I, that morning, I would I, I would have yeah. enjoyed that talk. It sounds like, but uh, what has been interesting to me is it was also a, a, a side theme throughout this, where it's always these conversations about alpha and beta, and and you know, these these conversations like fascinate me. And in part of the the rub, I think I always see between people, um, and I think Corey talks about this often as well. Is like the idea is alpha is unexplained beta, but most traders or managers have to have an explanation for their alpha. Mm-hmm. So like they kind of preclude each other in a way. It's like, or most people don't want to like take the Rentac style alpha if it's unexplainable because they want to have an explainable uh, strategy and thesis to their investors. Yet we're saying alpha is just beta that hasn't been explained yet. So it's just an interesting like, right. it's like uh, um, what's the, uh, you'll know the term, but like once you notice it, it's gone basically. So once you, yeah. once you explain your alpha, it becomes beta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then he had an interesting with managed futures. He had an interesting thing of like an example of adding complexity. He's like to protect their turf, a lot of trend followers, managed futures added complexity. Maybe they added some long only, they added equity tilt, they added different things that resulted in a lot of tracking error, right? Versus the fictitious managed futures beta. And he brought up, which you've talked about ad nauseum of like, okay, this dispersion between every year, the top, you know, the CTA index, the top guy to the bottom guy is like, he quoted, I think, 7% uh, dispersion. We've seen even larger than that. My pushback on that would be, hey, if you know what's going on underneath the hood, this one's an energy trader, this one's a short-term quant trader, this one's a long-term trend follower, that it's not as easy to just say they added complexity. That's why there's dispersion. To me, it's like they're doing massively different strategy types and they're just poorly categorized and lumped into the same category. But you even see that in the Sokjin Trend Index, similar yeah. dispersion so it is there but that i yeah i just kind of argue back with that of like is that adding complexity for the sake of protecting their turf or are they adding complexity to to be the best they can be who knows yeah, no yeah. even if they're doing the same as, as you've seen over those decades too even if they're doing relatively similar things that this diversion can still be wide right like just uh different lookbacks different trading time horizons you know breakouts versus crossovers you know how do you define a breakout like all those things matter over yeah the, over the longer term and then one of the questions by uh someone i think whose handle was mothman in the uh question was app was how do you think about whether added complexity is worth it or not so he didn't quite have the time or thing to get into that but he was kind of saying comes back to understanding what it's doing understanding is it complex for complexity's sake or is it complex to the average person or is it complex to you? Which was interesting, right? He's like, okay, one man's complex is like, oh, options scary, which we actually heard on some of these other panels. But right, if options scary is complex, well, hey, I understand these options inside out. This isn't complex to me. Therefore, I don't think adding options overlay or something to a portfolio is adding complexity for the sake of complexity. Yeah, if I go pop the hood on my car, it's going to be like, 
incredibly <laughs> complex to me. Even if it was an old car that somebody could figure out pretty easily how to work that mechanical system, I'm going to be a complete moron and, and that's going to be overly complex to me. That is a great example. And apropos to me, because I would be in the same boat of like, what? this looks like the uh, engine block. Um, and to me, like a, a microwave is nothing but magic to me. So, I mean, again, <laughs> it works. What a great invention. What do you think is more important for society, the microwave or the refrigeration? Oh, I was definitely refrigeration. I was even, I thought you might go AC because that's like what changed, you know, yeah. any but sort of same, equatorial country or the South. But same technology, right? So the right ability yeah. to cool the air instead of the food. Um, Next panel was you done with that you got any other thoughts on no, forecast or forge no but yeah i thought next, you'd like that because that right different way of thinking what you call path dependency and covering all paths is resilience right creating a resilient portfolio yeah unfortunately i was at a coffee meeting and i was making plans to meet up with jem in istanbul so unfortunately <laughs> i missed that one <laughs> Next panel, options, block liquidity, how institutions will benefit from the technology of tomorrow. Um, this was super in the weeds, super inside baseball. Yeah. Right? You had head of Citadel Securities, was it? Um, yeah, so it's like, is this is this a panel when the moderators, uh, Jason Rolke at uh, Citadel Securities, and then one of the panelists is Dave Silber at Citadel Securities, and then you have uh, Rob Wilkes from uh, Waratah advisor so yeah it was very um in the weeds about um you know trading options block and liquidity and everything so i just had some anecdotes and then you can add to it but um it was interesting actually jason the the moderator actually was even jumping in more than any other moderator because i was a smaller panel um but he was saying he thinks that institutions follow retail traders and options and I was like, that's that was a hot take yeah. that he didn't yeah, yeah. necessarily necessarily span, expand on. But he also thought that, um, like I said, these are more anecdotal. But like that dispersion is down to like two weeks, so they're seeing uh, the dispersion really take effect over a, a shorter time horizon than, or well, I guess depending on who you are and your time horizon might be shorter or longer. Um, but he, he really pointed out that two week mark. But what do you um, mean there? Not the dispersion we were talking about with a dispersion trade of the. What do you mean on that on the two weeks? I thought he was talking about like dispersion trade on the, on that more like the two oh, weeks okay. is where you're seeing the most dispersion between index and single name. Oh, he could. Um, yeah. One of the other things like almost like uh, he pointed out too is that he feels like there's extra liquidity in single name options compared to their underlying asset. So that would be almost a, a Gem Carson like tail wagging the dog. So he had like those counterintuitive things where like institutions are following retail and that the options are more liquid than the underlying uh reference asset that they're 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 overlaying so that was a and then this was just pure anecdote but he's like daily volume at the occ is quote-unquote astronomical astronomical so, yeah the, know, um, that's more... so i had jotted down that the options execution is basically just catching up with the rest of the market of what we've had for years and years in single name securities and even in futures so block orders on the screen, algo execution. Um, and the Citadel guy was kind of saying like institutions sometimes still have to call. They have to wait for a an auction to get made. They have to wait to see what both sides that are and the, the advances are going to be. That all happens immediately. I think he was even saying like a Bloomberg plugin that could be possible where you're seeing your auction inside of Bloomberg. 
Um, there was a little Bloomberg hating there of like, hey, we all, right, like, we know we all use it. We know we all hate having to pay the price. Um, and then they dropped this little nugget unintentionally, I think, but that Citadel Securities has compounded volume at a growth rate of 80% a year since 2020. <laughs> uh, and that 70% of the volume is done electronically through them, 70%. Um, so yeah, moving towards option auction automation. And that was it. Less clicks, less friction, right? That was kind of interesting, like bringing it back to retail and Amazon, and they're just trying to get to less clicks. Oh yeah, and then I had the same thing. Retail's the tail wagging the dog. Institutions falling retail in if retail causes the liquidity to increase. So I had that if, right? They're following it in if when retail comes in, the liquidity increases. So it's kind of coming back to that like non-toxic turning toxic, right? So if they're seeing mm -hmm. it kind of concentrated movement, they're now switching sides and they'll follow it in. Uh, and then he also said the large increase in leaps volume uh, especially in rates. Yeah, I mean, you'd, I think you'd see longer out in rates in general than you would see in like any sort of equity. Yeah, because you, your liabilities are going to be longer. Yeah. Moving on, we had equity and systematic strategies in the new regime. I think we'll both politely say this was one of the least interesting ones to us. Is that polite enough? Yeah, I was trying to think. I was trying to think of we politely say this stuff, and then in in not any individual, but I was also wondering if like how much the host actually does matter. You know, we think sometimes the host is like inconsequential, but maybe driving the direction and arc of a conversation and tying things together might be. And I'm not saying this was the case in this scenario, but I was. It was just making me think about some of the panels that were kind of just more, you know, people just whipping a back and forth anecdotes and no real follow through or conversation, but. Yeah, and I think it was kind of mis uh, set up too. Right? It was a bunch of some of them are just doing long only, some were doing income strategies and equities. So it was kind of like big, simplistic. I don't want to use that in the right wrong word, but um, quantitative models that are doing not advanced option whatnot or whatnot, but how many securities to own and which securities to own. Um, they did get into a little bit of like back testing. Yeah, that was um, the only interesting part that I had some notes on. Yeah, and, and, um, and one of them said backtesting. They don't mind the shorter backtest uh, and that a human is needed to judge the length and, a, and the approach to backtesting. Yeah, that was uh, Linus at um, BlackRock was talking about how human sensibility has to see um, the parts that the backtest doesn't make sense, right? Or that was outside the parameters of the backtest. Um, and then related to that is like, you know, you know, we've talked about this many times before, like systematic is about, um, and I think this was from Sharon, she was saying systematic is about creating a, a low cost automation of an, of emotional fundamentals. So when everybody goes, you know, are you, you know, systematic or discretionary? It's like, well, every systematic rule had discretionary emotions embedded in it. Right. And so, you know, we you and I have talked about that many times, but right. um, she was, yeah. What automating what a good fundamental manager would do at scale and at cost. Right. And then Barrel followed that up basically too. It's, yeah, we're, we're rules-based at Newberger Berman, but um, but in, the inputs can be emotional. And I thought that was another interesting way of putting it. It's like you can have a, emotional battles about the inputs, but then it's all rules-based once you get those in there. Um, and then Barrel also an interesting point that their models look at the current market signals and not historical. So I took that to mean they're not saying, hey, every time 
the market's down six and a half percent, it rallies X percent. And that's what our model's working off. It's just when X indicators above Y indicator, we're getting into those. I think it was more fundamental than that of like, if the price to earning is X, we're getting in. And then I'll, I won't name names here, but I had this, someone up there said they take some liberties in adjusting the models based on the macro environment. And I just wrote down yeah. WTF. <laughs> so it's like, what? That's like, to me, quant 101 of like, no, you don't adjust the models yeah. based on what's going on. Because how do you know, right? You just picked up the paper or you listen to a podcast and you're like, oh my God, this SVB stuff is terrible. Sell everything. I, take some liberties. I, I wonder how much that is part of the zeitgeist though, because I think about how many of our potential clients ask us that similar question. And so maybe that's what they're they're using as a, a narrative for their clients is that they're attenuating their rules based to the macro overlay. And they're smarter I get that, by half. That, they're just throwing that yeah. in there, even though they don't do it. Yeah, I don't know. I just that's my <laughs> uh, my dubious questioning of that. But like that's because I, I just hear that more and more often these days. So it's just I don't know if that's kind of in the ether. Um, and then uh, Linus also said they use options as a smart money indicator. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But most of the stuff was very um, whether it was you know BlackRock, Systematic, or Vanguard. You know, it wasn't uh, you know as interesting. You know. Yeah. Um, so moving on, we had the next one was. Um, this one should be good. A combination approach to building a diversifying strategy portfolio with Roberto Croci, Jim's brother. Just joking. Um, <laughs> Newton, Joe Elminger, Powis Forjo, Grant Jafarian, and Ryan Lobdell. So I had stepped out here. So I'm going to let you and flew home. Yeah, so left you. And why I said it was interesting too is because uh, obviously Grant Jafarian, uh, famous Chicago trading family that you know well, uh, Ryan uh, Lobdell works at Makita uh, with my buddy Jason Josephiak, um, especially on their RMS strategies, their risk mitigation strategies. Um, and then Powis works at uh, UPS Group, but I think he's in a separate division uh, from Roxton. I but I was like, it, yeah. When, yeah, when Powis is on there, it's always interesting. So I have a lot of anecdotes. Um, but, you know, basically Grant was like talking about how trend following has evolved a lot over the last decade, uh, mostly how managers have moved much more towards long term, like six months plus uh, with the addition of carry and beta. So as the, you're saying, is, is, as managed futures evolves and people want to add a carry and beta to provide better return streams, but the actual trend piece has moved much more longer term signals like six months plus. Do you do you? Think you've saw this seem seen the same thing in the last decade? I mean, especially during that that lull of the 2010s. Yeah, definitely. If you wanted to survive, it was go longer term, add add beta, yeah, and and or carry. Much to a detriment in some cases of like, okay, are you gonna perform in a 22 when that happens? Which most of them did. So I think that's what's lost in that conversation. Like, oh, you're adding these dangerous pieces. You're adding this dispersion from the true trend following. Right. But there's nothing to say they can't turn those pieces off or like when trend comes fully back, like they can be dynamic and switch around. But that they can it, use the, the macro environment as an overlay yes. to it anyway. They can uh, take some liberties. Joe, uh, Joe had an interesting point about the the Wimbledon trade. I don't know how much you were, you know about that one. When, the insurance? Uh, what, yeah. yeah, the tennis tournament, how they were basically paying $2 million a year for uh, pandemic insurance. And a lot of people are like, that's stupid. That's a negative line item, all that stuff. But it was based on their capex growth, so that was an interesting, like almost like we were saying with 
you know, whether knowing if flow is toxic or non-toxic is like, you don't know if somebody's hedging their book, if it's a directional play, you know, what they have in, in dark pools. Well, now if you're talking about actual businesses and having to have CapEx growth, you don't know that like the hedging creates a lower cost of capital. So Wimbledon had decided to be a preeminent tournament moving forward. They had to put tens of millions of dollars and quite frankly, hundreds of millions of dollars over a decade into building out their facilities, you know, restaffing all of those sorts of things. So if Better there were cases- yeah, like all those things are like uh, more champagne and strawberries. Um, so no one likes bleed, but still like it saved their bacon, right? They were able to survive and surviving is the only success. But it was interesting how much the that hedge was not necessarily predicting a pandemic was more like hedging their CapEx spending. So I think that's always an interesting way to think about things where, you know, in options world, um, you know, everybody can get what they want because you don't realize that. Um, you know, real economic, you know, hedgers, especially whether it's managed futures and options might be hedging, you know, their exposure to, you know, uh, commodity versus refined product versus, you know, cost of capital. So you really don't know kind of what's at play there. Um, and Grant was talking about too, that like strategies that offer genuine diversification need dispersion. Um, no, there is, there is no benchmark and it needs to be, uh, timing oriented, no passive, no passive, no benchmark, and you need dispersion for the genuine diversification that managed futures can provide. So he must I mean, be I jotting think... down when Tom Lee was using that as a bad example, yeah. like, oh, <laughs> I'll show you dispersion. Uh, um, and then R Roberto asked, I think like, uh, why do you need active? Why not like QIS, which is basically QIS, like quantitative investment strategies are basically like uh, systematic passive uh, factor investing. Um, so Joe's response with that is everyone has thousands of bespoke indices. Uh, the, the rules base doesn't adapt to a changing market. So going back to the idea of like a macro overlay, or like you're saying, even if managed futures had on, you know, carry and other beta trades that they can switch, you know, the more trend trades or just, or just adjust kind of like a, uh, like a dimmer switch, you know, how much exposure they have. Um, what was interesting too, like we were talking about that dispersion with managed future and trend trend players is like Ryan pointed out that um trend directionally correlates, but PL dispersion can be large. And so it's best to use ensembles for clients. <laughs> just mic I'll just mic drop that one. Couldn't right. couldn't couldn't agree more. Oh, this is where the tick came in. So uh so even Grant brought up that the tick size for e-minis, that that twelve dollars and fifty cents. Um makes it a difficult for the execution cost, right? You have to innovate on the execution cost side. And so he was he was pointing out that like the HFT and other front running traders make their execution costs so much higher for trend followers than they have been historically. So part of a, a CTA or trend following firm these days has to have a division that's really working on their execution costs and making sure that they can have better execution costs. So that's that's that bit of that red queen principle that we find where everybody's like, well, I can use a trend index, I can do trend at home, all that stuff. But as we know, the firms that are working hardest is actually on the reduction of the transaction cost side and worrying about um, you know disguising their orders for the HFT firms. And that's like a, a big firm, big fund problem, right? Like if you have $3 billion yeah. of your huge trend follower, but point taken. And then interesting... I think QIS used to be called risk premium, right? Have we gotten rid of the risk premium name and now it's QIS? 
you saw that popping up too and the factors and yeah, it's just all like everything has just a new acronym and everything, which, you know, I, I, I always joke with the guys at Makita about their RMS, their risk mitigation strategies is like the new, new version of tail, tail risk or, or long vol yeah. um, or, or managed futures or commodity. Once again, managed futures, commodity trend followers, CTAs, you know, pick yes. your poison. Um, and then obviously Ryan's, uh, you know, with their RMS strategies, person after my own heart, he said, uh, you need to size the allocation to like, manage futures or trend to the payoff you need like a one percent allocation doesn't do anything. anything and so yeah makita's you know uh, advising trillions of dollars and so when they're talking to large institutions about their allocation size to trend following you can imagine when they're having those conversations they're like one to four percent they're like you know what's the point you're actually not doing anything but that's usually the, the, a lot of the conversations they are having um i'll throw out a shameless plug for our Guide to Trend Following White Paper that has a whole couple pages in there on that, uh, which was based on a great work by Welton a bit ago. Like by a bit, I mean maybe 15 years ago. <laughs> but it was basically showing, okay, if you expect 6% annual return, whatever, and you want to get to 10, it was just simple math, right? Of like you're expecting six out of that your 60, 40 portfolio, you want to get to 10% a year to meet your pension liability. What does this allocation of these alts have to return? And it was showing like at 5% allocation, it has to do 78%. So it was just like, I feel like that's a better way to frame it up. Like, okay, you're into it. You like the diversification. What do you think this needs to return in order to do what you want it to do? And they'll be like, right where it's at of the 15%. Like, no, no, no. Then you need 25% exposure. So yeah, kudos to him for recognizing that. But I would love to ask him follow-up of like, how many of your clients actually listen and do more than 5%? The next panel was on uh, fixed income factors and um, my buddy Roni Israeloff from Endeavor, formerly of AQR, was on that panel. And so maybe I'll short uh, shorthand this is like recently uh, Roni's been making the podcast rounds and I highly recommend his um, his episodes on Resolve Riffs and then Corey Hofstein's flirting with models. And Roni really breaks down like corporate bonds and you know short dispersion trades like he 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 views like you know why be in corporate bonds when you're basically long treasury plus risk premium and short to put and so roni can go into all those details and i highly recommend listening to any of the podcasts he's been on recently um because the stuff they're doing in endeavor is very interesting and, and to your question earlier is like they're building ldi ladders for retirees and i think that's a really interesting differentiating factor for an ria that nobody else is really doing and he's just bringing all of that firepower that he that he's built uh with aqr over the years and, and and applying it at endeavor now and it's really impressive what the kind of using the technology and what they're building out there and really quick what do you mean by ldi ladder so i'm you're matching their uh, i have 200k spend in the next five years then it's down to yep. 125 so cool we're yep. going to get to this income at those milestones Right. Tagging you when you need when you have those income needs or for other people be liability needs historically when you're uh, an insurance company. But for individuals, yeah, it's when you need those income and then tying your treasury ladder to the exact income you need. So that way you're always just hitting it dead on for all those tranching out the years uh, of your future life. Especially at today's rates. That's what makes that even possible, right? Yeah. And then uh, a little bit of... You know, fireworks are trying to, you know, before I had to catch my flight, the last, the last, uh, the last discussion, because it wasn't a panel, the discussion I caught was, does the rear rear mirror see the wall ahead with uh, Mike Green from Simplify and Jem Carson from Kai Volatility? Great Advisors. title. And yeah. 
Great title. Uh, you know, I love a good Kierkegaardian reference, right? That we only understand life through the rear view mirror, except for we have to, we have to drive looking forward. So that's always the the tough part about life. Um, so there's a little bit like uh, kind of anecdotes in here. The problem I think actually was, you know, with, with both these gentlemen, they're, they're, they're quite verbose. And I think they gave them like 30 minutes to talk. Oh, and so yeah. I think they were trying to, to try to jam a lot into 30 minutes. So it's kind of a little bit of back and forth. And so basically the, the conversation is like, can markets price in a future event? Um, and Jem's pointing out that we had the rise in zero DTE um, because Vega didn't work and the RV gamma has the, the realized vol and gamma has worked. But now he's saying the realized vol is dramatically compressed. So he's just once again, to touch on the zero DTE. Um, Mike was pointing out that the the least sensitivity of VIX to S&P moves is like uh, is nobody cares about 30 day vol. And right. And so uh, VIX is priced on uh, expected 30 day forward variance. And he he had a slide. I can't remember exactly what he had a good wording of it, but it's basically like nobody cares about 30 day vol. It's like mm-hmm. kind of like a who gives a shit, um, which is counter to the other banner where they're saying, no, these both those 30 day out and zero DT volume is separate and different. Yeah. And then what Jem and I've actually been talking about for a while now, him and I've been talking about this privately too, as well. And I think he's been talking about publicly. He's like, you know, Vol, like we were talking about earlier, it's moving to other asset classes and back, but like we were talking about the historical lessons, right? Like Vol um, gets compressed and then Vol explodes and then everybody gets blown out. And then if they rush to buy those hedges, Vol compresses again. And so we just keep going through these cycles over and over and over again, right? Like post 2008, everybody wanted insurance, but that was a good time to be selling insurance, you know, and then until selling insurance does well, it compresses down. Then we have like pops like 2020, like it just keeps, it keeps expanding and contracting. And usually people are kind of on the wrong side, but it's just like that really historical references. Like you're saying, you have 2017, you had all sellers. And then February, 2018, you had Vol again, it pops. And then you, it re- you reverse course again. Like it just keeps going back and forth. The problem to me is the timing there, right? So like, cool, I know it's going to revert, but if it's post 2020 and that echo remained around for a long time, it's like, yeah, it took too long to revert and I got carried out on a body bag. Like, so you can know it's yeah. going to cycle, but if the one edge of the cycle takes too long. Well, yeah, you can, what's the, uh, you can predict things, but not the timing or whatever. Like you can say directional, but not, don't give a time frame. And yeah. so he's talking about like, you know, 2020, everybody's saying, uh, you know, short vol sitting in equities. And then, you know, currently we're set up for a vol expansion. So once again, that's, you know, but once again, what is the timing? Um, and, and Jem was just talking about with the debt ceiling and that anything under two years, the market is a, is a voting machine. Um, he feels that liquidity is slim in the tails. So maybe that's also why you could see that, that reversion of, you know, buying, and this is not investment advice, you know, buying that skew, that deep out of the money skew, like if that liquidity is thin and people just go keep, keep rushing in there, you know, on a potential, you know, low liquidity environment that you could see that, that deep out of the money tail, like pop again. Made Um, me a little nervous overall that several people were like, oh, it's getting to be a better environment for that tail protection. Like if everyone's noticing it, is it really going to be there? Well, as you and I both know, it's like, it might be a better environment, might be what we quote unquote cheaper, but it could be cheaper for years and get, and get even cheaper than that. Right. So that's the problem. Right. But at least it's not, the asymmetries back at least, but you might just still be bleeding out. Um, right, but Mike, better to bleed out two percent a year than six percent a year. Yeah, Mike pointed out that everyone lacks conviction, so they're just buying calls for upside instead of delta one, which also might skew other people's metrics on like put call parity, etc., and, and whether the market is bullish or bearish. Um, 
which also Gem comes back that. to Jem's overall thesis that people are moving whole hog into options. Yeah. And Jem said the recession isn't the biggest risk, stagflation is. So I thought that was interesting. Secular, sticky inflation, and we'd have like a middling economy. Um, I don't know how much he's, I don't think he's been talking about that too much lately. So that was, that was fairly new. Um, Mike said though, he, he pushed back, said he's not worried about stagflation. Um, but he is worried that credits, credit spreads could be explosive. And then, uh, you probably heard Jim say this before he's talking about once again, like quote unquote, populism is local and capitalism is global. And he feels that we were shifting back to that local populism, um, where we've been in a global capital world for, for decades or or as he likes to call it, planet Palo Alto. Um, and then he he referenced once again that the zero DTE becomes a problem if it gets unbalanced. But like his, everybody was talking about how how balanced it's been. Um, and then and then Mike asked that question again of like, if the OCC you know changes those intraday margin, is that a catalyst for that zero DTE to blow up? And they they both kind of you know agreed that could be the potential catalyst. Um, but that was yeah, there was it was like it was a quick back and forth, and it, it ended rather quickly. Um, and I'm not, you know, they were yes, trying right. to, I think, go, I didn't write the notes down. They were trying to basically go through a lot of history of options trading, you know, back into like the eighties and nineties. So that's what I'm saying. I think it got too compressed and a little, a little bit jumbled and, you know, probably needed two hours for those, those two to have a, a, a good conversation. They could have had their whole own day, right? Session panel yeah. three with Jim and Mike panel six. Yeah. And then um, after, after that one, I had to run to run to catch a flight, but then there was another, you know, a, you know, talking about QIS again, there's a fireside chat, um, you know, about equity derivatives. And I really wish I could have saw the risk management portfolio diversification in 2023. Um, but once again, had to, had to catch a flight. I hear you. And you got to go catch a flight now. So ish. Yeah. Um, awesome. This has been fun. Thank you. We'll see you again next year. No, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate you. That's it for the pod. Thanks to Jason. Thanks to RCM. Thanks to ETD for the great conference. And thanks to Jeff Berger for producing. We'll be back, hopefully, with Jerry Parker next week. Peace. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCM Alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.